Welcome to EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast. I'm editor-at-large James Hibbert. And I am senior writer Darren Franich. And we're going to talk about the season six premiere, The Red Woman, including that stunning Melisandre reveal. What does it mean? How old is she really? And we'll tell you how that effect was achieved. Plus, we're going to break down the rest of the episode, give away a season five Blu-ray and answer some of your questions. One of the things that's so exciting about... uh podcasting this season is that, you know, it's all kind of brand new things, whether you're a reader of the books or someone who's just experienced Westeros via the TV show. And last night was an example of something that, you know, in the books, it's often been teased that Melisander might be very old. Uh, In one of your uh, write-ups this morning, you were pointing out that there's theories that she's 100 years old, theories that she's 400 years old. Um, What do we kind of know about Melisander at this point, uh, based on uh, what the show has told us and uh, what what your dynamic uh, a reporting has a uh, revealed. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think in the books it's it's it, it's been referenced that it's glowed red before, right? I mean, is, isn't that something that's sort of been hinted at the books that, that that her necklace has has some sort of power going on with it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Melisander in the books and in the TV show both, she's interesting because her arrival is really the arrival of of like straight up magic in the story of you know a song of ice and fire. And so yeah, that that kind of glowing red rock is definitely one example of like oh I see okay there's 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 something really kind of strange um, um happening here. But we've never really had I don't think any full confirmation about that. And definitely I mean we've gotten just little teasing hints about her backstory. But, you know, definitely nothing on this level of revelation. Um, I mean, uh, you know, what do you think this kind of means for her future on the show? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously one big question is, does this mean she is more powerful than we thought? Or does it mean that she's less powerful than we thought? Because certainly in that scene, you know, she looks uh, so frail and so vulnerable. I mean, you know, the way that plays with uh, Davos saying, you know, oh, you haven't seen her do what 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 I have seen. And, you know, we should get her involved in this to help us. And then you see her true self as this ancient uh, woman and she just sort of crawls into bed like, you know, forget helping them. I'm just going to, you know, get some shut eye. It's sort of it both at one time suggests that there's so much more going on with her than we ever thought, but also that she might also be less than what we thought. I mean, is it all just a magic necklace? It, you, know, you know, does it have nothing to do with the, the Lord of Light? Is, is it all an, it, you know, a trick, an, an illusion to some extent? Yeah, and you know, one idea that is at the core of all George R. R. Martin's uh, writing on on Westeros is this idea that like magic, you know, in a lot of other stories, magic is this really cool thing that you know Harry Potter gets to learn and everything. Whereas in Westeros, any magic, there's always some kind of horrible counterweight. And you know, when the Red God brings people back to life, they are never quite the same. And it, that feels like this is very much in that spirit. Where you know, does she need to kind of keep that stone close to her, or else you know one day she'll just like finally die of, of of old age obviously james i have to ask the bigger question here so we now know that at castle black there is a woman who seems to be very very old who seems to be perhaps even cheating death because of a red stone around her neck there was also at castle black someone who seems to be dead but who a lot of people really want brought back to life what are the chances of these two things intersecting sometime in the near future <laughs> well what i thought was fun in the premiere is melisandre you know is in uh the lord commander's chambers with 
Davos with Jon Snow's body and they're all talking. And as a viewer, you're watching that going just wanting somebody to say, hey, Melisandre, you know, while you're in here, you know, you know given that 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 you know, you're, you're like a red priestess at all, maybe, you know, try a little, you know, CPR here or something, you know, to uh, to to give him a little help. We would happily accept even like, you know, uh, a version of Jon Snow that is a sort of horrifying, you know, demon version of, of Jon Snow. Whatever the Red God wants to do, we're probably um, OK with. Um, how did you feel, James? I mean, going into this episode, you know, we we here in 2016 have experienced our own version of who shot Jr. with the, the sort of Jon Snow question of what's going to happen to him. Question still seems to me somewhat open in a way. How did you feel about how the season premiere handled Jon Snow? And by handled, I mean just picked up Kit Harrington's corpse and threw it on a table for an hour. <laughs> I know. I think it's really brilliant that what we're going into is this siege story with Jon Snow's body in the same location. So it's this weird thing of keeping him in the show without him being in the show because they're trapped in there with him. (laughs) But, you know, emotionally it works too because remember, the reason they're in this confrontation with uh, Sir Sir Alcer and and the uh, mutineers is because they killed him. So it's like this visual reminder in 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 the shot of what they're resisting and fighting for. What are the chances that Kit Harrington is contracted for a couple more seasons, but his job just becomes like laying on various tables, gradually decomposing? What, <laughs> what's the over under on, on that uh, going forward? Yeah, it's it's like Weekend at Bernie's Westeros edition, right? <laughs> just keep on pretending that he's still alive. Listen, unfortunately this is one of those great situations where because Westeros is so big, you know, news travels very slow, and I loved the moment in the Theon and Sansa arc when Theon said, listen Sansa, like, it's okay, head north, you'll be fine, Jon is the Lord Commander at Castle Black, and it was just like, nope, there's there's no hope there, there's no hope there. <laughs> Not only that, uh, you know, Sam doesn't know. I mean, Sam uh, left Castle Black, so, so, so somewhere, you know, he's traveling just blissfully unaware that his best friend in the world is now uh you know dead on a table somewhere but let's stick with um Melisandre <laughs> because I, I think there's like more things to sort of sort of dig into there you know one thing that's interesting is I talked to to, to the director uh Jeremy Padeswa and he was talking about how because I was, I was trying to pin down how old is she really you know is she uh 400 years old as as Chris Van Houten once suggested is she uh, over 100 and the idea behind it was they wanted to create an indefinite, indeterminate quality, as he put it, that she could be ancient, but they didn't want to make her look so old that she looked unrealistic. And what they did was, and I just found this fascinating, like the Walk of Shame last year, they had their own actor's head on another person's body. They had Crease uh, in prosthetic makeup uh, for for neck up. And then from neck down, they cast an older woman. And that's her actual body. That's not like CGI. That's not special effects. And But they did use effects to sort of piece the two performances together. 
Well, and James, as you pointed out, it's so great that they got the actress who was in Room 237 in The Shining back in the day. You know, like, we haven't seen her in a long time. But <laughs> right. it's, it's great that they got that same... They, they, I, like, they seem to get that same exact person, and the effect of that change was, as, as you kind of pointed out in your recap, the same effect as in The Shining, when you see the sort of beautiful and, and mysterious young woman become, uh, I think, a character who in The Shining is actually named the old crone or, or, or something like that. Chris Van Houten, baby basically uh, had the feeling that, you know, when she was able to say last season, you know, this is just a small war, it's all relative, you know, compared to the big war we're going to face, you know, her perspective is different than mere mortals. You know, her perspective is that, you know, what is sacrificing one child when it can save all these people? You know, she doesn't really get, probably get very emotionally attached to any given person, given how long she's been around. She does not seem to be mourning Stannis too much. That's that's for sure. I, yeah, I, you know, I do wish that 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 Stannis uh, would have been still been alive for this reveal. It would be great to you know watch him discover he's been totally catfished this entire time. Before watching the premiere last night, I I went back and rewatched the season five finale because uh, uh, because my girlfriend hadn't seen it yet, and I really just got to call out again. You know, Stannis, who is not a character who is ever uh, likable, I would say his sort of final arc is maybe the most tragic thing that has ever happened on on this show. And so him him sort of being gone now. On one hand, I'm sad, but I'm also like, it's okay. You, you know, to to uh, quote Jamie, it's okay, Stannis. You, you know, nobody can hurt you a- anymore. <laughs> Nothing else bad can possibly happen. Uh, James, uh, while we're in Castle Black, can I just call out, um, I I may have a new MVP on the show, um, a character who has been around for a really long time, and and only last night, I I really made an effect on me. Great to see Dolores Ed kind of, you you know, getting into action, Uh huh? Like, he's he's really kind of like, you know, kind of like like taking over a a little bit up there at uh, Castle Black. Yeah, yeah, and he has a lot of fans, too, uh, among uh, watchers of the show, so uh, it's cool to see him get some more screen time. Who knows, maybe Maybe by episode three, he'll be running uh, the Night's Watch. He could be, or he could be dead. Um, or that. See, James, uh, I want to kind of move on to another corner of the map, and uh, I, I want to talk about something that, if it's okay with you, I, I think we have to talk about. Not a whole lot of Greyjoys in this episode, but there were an awful lot of Martells, at least there were when the episode began. Uh, can you kind of talk about what, what we saw with our friends uh, down in Dorne? Yeah, uh, that was pretty shocking. I mean, I was shocked because, you know, as I point out in the recap on EW.com, you know, it was it was a situation where you don't have usually regular characters in a show that get killed off within seconds of being introduced in a premiere. That's just not normally placement wise when you do it. You tend to build up to it and sort of, you know, lay the groundwork for it. And then, you know, you know in this case, it's like, oh, yeah, OK, it's uh, Prince Duran and, and he's talking. And, and then all of a sudden he's just dead and Hota is dead. And then they she even, <laughs> you, you know, you know, they even killed the messenger who brought him the message. It was just like total slaughter, um, wiping out nearly half of the characters we know in that entire kingdom. What I would love to add to tvtropes.org is um, a term known as a death orgy, which is when a TV show kills three or more useless characters all at the same time. (laughs) The last time that I really recall this happening was Walking Dead. I think it was end of season two when they just killed everybody who was on the farm besides the characters that, you know, we were that we were actually interested in. And boy, I mean, for anybody who was complaining about the Doran stuff last year, this this seemed to really kind of 
advance things um, really quickly. The, the Sand Snake stuff last year was, I, I think, maybe the most controversial in the show's history only because, you know, it was taking stuff from the books. I'm kind of of the mind that even in the books, it wasn't necessarily as effective as some storylines. It definitely didn't feel that effective last season. But if nothing else, they, they're definitely advancing that plot line now. Um, how do you think like uh, that kind of plays into the show's master plan this season? You know, it's interesting because I think last season, yeah, you, you had a certain amount of criticism and, uh, you know, the showrunners ha- haven't uh, talked about it. But, you know, they're t- they tend to be harder on themselves than any fan. So I wonder if to some extent, you know, there's a certain amount of course correcting going on where they look at that storyline and they're like, you know, we want to continue that storyline. You know, we feel it has an important role to play, but, you know, let's just sort of clean house and focus on the characters that we think are the most interesting, compelling uh, moving forward for for season six. And of course, there there's also uh, the prince, too. I mean, he. He, he was given the choice of which sand snake to face and, you know, chose poorly by choosing one of them and turning his back on the other, which was, you know, one of the dumbest <laughs> moves that I think, you know, he be, he sort of deserved to die with that choice. And at first you think he's being smart because he's like, hmm, spear or bullwhip, which am I going to face with a sword? And he's like, I'm going to choose the bullwhip. But he really should have just stayed there with his back to the wall and waited for one of them to attack him. But uh, so, yeah, he kind of had it coming. Well, and I like that scene for two reasons. First of all, because it was hilarious. I always love it when a TV show does the sort of Nikki and Paolo thing where it's just like, we know this character is not adding anything. What is the sort of most schadenfreude-laden fashion to kill him off? So I like that. But I like, too, how, you know, in a short amount of time, you really get the sense that even now that we're moving past the books, the showrunners definitely get what A Song of Ice and Fire is about. Because just in that short scene, you have, you know, the sort of master narrative of what's happened to so many characters, going all the way back to Ned Stark, where here's a character, the prince, who thinks, oh, like... I'm facing enemies who are following, like, rules of honor, you know, like, these the, these codes of conduct, you know, my, I think they're cousins, right, him him and the Sand Snakes, you know, they are, they are telling me that I'll face one of them at a duel, and so that's what I'll do. He doesn't realize, like, no, 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 like, th- th- these are people who do not follow those codes of conduct, and their only goal is ending your life and furthering their own ambitions. So I, I enjoyed that scene quite a bit. Um, I did notice that uh, Indira Varma um, is now uh, listed in the show's opening credits, which I'm not sure if she was last year, which I'm excited about that because I've been a fan of hers going back to Rome, and so the fact that she now seems to be kind of taking over uh, the Dorne arc, I, 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 I am more optimistic about that, um, much as I love Dr. Bashir from Deep Space Nine. I'm, I'm glad that Dorne seems to be kind of trimming down um, a little bit uh, going into season six. Yeah, I think your point is excellent that um, about how this is the Game of Thrones, you know, character original sin coming back to manifest itself on those two characters. And in terms of uh, Varma, too. Yeah, Rome, by the way, and I, I never miss an opportunity to say this. If you like Game of Thrones and you have never seen Rome, go check it out. It was a terrific series. It's only two seasons. It was canceled 
you know, oftentimes fans say they never should have canceled the show. But in that case, they really shouldn't have because it started to really take off right after they canceled it. They had to make a decision on whether to order a third season before the second season had even aired. And it was sort of like like the pre Game of Thrones series. And a lot of people feel that if it had only premiered a couple years later, you know, once more DVR playback and and, uh, you know, home video and streaming had taken off a little more that it probably would have kept going. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but in the sort of like a HBO Go uh, role that plays before Game of Thrones, they are now kind of re-advertising Rome. So, yeah, like if you like Game of Thrones and you want to see a version of Game of Thrones that's like just King King's Landing and a really cool version of, of Marine, that's basically what Rome is. It is it is very entertaining. And uh, Indira Varma, who is a very different character on that show, I'm glad that, you know, now we're sort of seeing her really kind of like get in the driver's seat, uh, which I will say though now James I am just kind of like and and I'm sure it, it maybe you feel this way too trying to follow now we're kind of getting right back to the war of the five kings now I think I mean there's so many different forces kind of like you know you know accruing on all sides and any you know any minor alliance that was fixed seems to have totally fallen apart now uh, which is sort of an interesting place to be uh in the season 6 premiere yeah 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 you're right it's starting to sort of get that sense of the sort of global war uh ramping back up again, uh, except for, of course, uh, Danny, who's now captive. And so let's that's a segue. Let's let's jump into that, because with Danny being back with, with the Dothraki, um, it's very intriguing plot development because you had in the first season her with the Dothraki. And it was very much this relationship of her being this captive who was young and she didn't know what she was doing. And she was trying to trying to figure out her way among this strange culture. She's changed so much. And uh, this uh, Kalsar seems very different, potentially, than the one she was in before. And she has a very different kind of leader that she's facing. And immediately, it's like the dynamic is different. And I think, too what's going to be good is that the Dothraki are fun. There's something fun about this group. And, you know, you could see the writers having some playfulness within the subtitled conversations going on and also playing with, to some degree, the uh, the, the, the Thrones uh, sexism charges by having this sort of take on the, the Dothraki bro culture where you have this you know, guy on the horse making all these you know, disgusting, disparaging comments about Danny. And then he's like, yeah, but on the other hand, I, I like them smart because, you know, if you don't talk after sex, then otherwise we're just dogs. It almost felt to me as if it was, and I, I mean this in a good way, sort of almost doing a slight parody of uh, the original Conan the Barbarian. You know that. You know that's it, what I thought too. Yes, yes, yes. The the original speech. And I loved how, like, when uh, we met uh, the new Cal and exactly what you're saying, his sort of like bro buddies, they got in a, a sort of minor debate over, well, you know, you know, what's what's better than seeing a a, a beautiful woman naked for the first time? Oh, well, uh, you know, it's definitely better to uh, you know take down an an, an enemy stronghold. Yes, yes, that, that is better. Ooh, much better t- to take over an army. Yes, yes, that's fine. All right, well, seeing a beautiful woman naked is one of the top five things in life. I, I, I quite enjoyed that because, I mean, if nothing else, you know, 
our first time around with the Dothraki, I, I, I don't think there was that sense of kind of humorous remove. And, and I kind of quite enjoy seeing that kind of added into the show. You know, you wouldn't think that they would introduce the Dothraki and this whole army of Dothraki without having at least one big fight scene with them. But the question is, who are they going to be fighting? And and obviously the bigger question is, you know, can Danny escape, you know, this sort of retirement home for former wives of calls, you know, that they're going to be putting her into? Yes, this also seems to be some commentary on like bro culture. I think like oh, like Danny Targaryen. Uh, you know your 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 husband's dead. Better just go to the retirement home now. There's there's nothing more for you to add uh, to 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 the events of uh, this world. Um, let's take a quick break. Question from a reader. Uh, we, we actually had an email from, let me see, from one of the admins on the Game of Thrones wiki page. You know, and you'll appreciate this because this is, this is definitely a book reader question. Uh, he says, I'm rather alarmed at how they heavily condensed season five to remove the pink letter in its entirety and shift motivation for the mutiny against Jon Snow to simply they're annoyed he left the wildlings at you know, through the wall. Um, what's your thought on that? The removal of the uh, pink letter, which uh, for non-book readers is a scathing, awesome letter that uh, Ramsey wrote to Jon Snow. Yeah, my feelings about this are deeply rooted in my feelings about book five, A Dance with the Dragons, which I love. Now, I, I understand that when I say Jon Snow spends all of book five, which is, I think, 3,000 pages long, when I say that he spends all of book five struggling with bureaucracy, I realize that sounds less exciting than fighting ice zombies. But in the book, it's actually really interesting because up to this point, Jon has been, you know, the, the sort of Aragorn figure of Lord of the Rings or, you know, this figure who, you know, is just so you know, heroic and so noble and so self-sacrificing sacrificing, has been constantly willing to die, has spent time beyond the wall. And so you get to book five and you're kind of like, oh boy, well, more of that is coming. And instead it's like, no, like now he's the Lord Commander. He needs to become a politician. And, you know, it, it's interesting because there's this sense of almost kind of seeing a beast caged. And at the very end of A Dance with the Dragons, when he has tried to just negotiate, you know, the Night's Watch hates me, the Wildlings hate me, Stannis is awful, you know, what am I supposed to do here? He gets this letter supposedly from Ramsay Bolton. And Ramsay just says the most horrible things about, you know, what he's doing to his sister Sansa, about what he's going to do to more of his friends. Uh, a lot of this doesn't really make sense because, you know, to show watchers, because it's, it's it's very different things uh, um, that, have, uh, that have happened in the show. But it, it is so raw, and it's like all at once, everything Jon Snow has been trying to do his whole life falls away. And he goes and gives this speech where he's like, all right, Night's Watch, like, f forget about all the stuff I said earlier about staying here, like, we need to march down. And at that point, that is when uh, Bowen Marsh and Alistair Thorne and, you know, the sort of, like, droogie men who, who've haunted him, that is when they kill him. But, you know, the the killing then is really meant to be, it's not just, we don't like you. It's literally, well, you know, you, you've now broken your oath. And I always remember that um, 
Bowen Marsh, who, who on the show people will know as like one of the guys who's always kind of like, you know, lingering behind Alistair Thorne, sort of twirling his mustache. He's actually crying when he does it in the book. And so there's really just like this sense of there's just a little more to the action. And it does seem like on the show, quite the opposite. They're kind of just pitching it as, you know, these are characters who have been against Jon Snow for so long and they finally kind of got it together to mutiny against him. So I, I, I feel a little bit of frustration of losing that. You know, it is the kind of thing where, I mean, the show does only have so much narrative real estate and I understand why, you know, as they're kind of setting up more things for, for the Boltons right now, to have that kind of arc suddenly converge up on Castle Black might have yeah. been strange. But I, 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 I do feel the frustration because it does sort of seem like, you know, how come Alistair Thorne didn't do this like a year ago or three years ago? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, it's like, I loved that letter moment in the book, but I also felt like it works so much better in a book. We have words on a page, uh, you know, ultimately is what a book is and what ultimately what the letter was. And so I felt like that the impact that I felt reading that probably wouldn't translate nearly as well to the show. And I, well, I agree it made more logical sense, you know, killing Jon Snow and they did in the book. You know, emotionally, it still tracks. It still tracks that there's been this growing frustration with Jon Snow. And then even though, you know, the wildlings are now through the wall. So, you know, what's the point of killing him now? You, You can still emotionally feel like that's that was the last straw. We have another quick uh, uh, email from a listener. Uh, this comes from uh, Miguel Lander. Uh, few, few questions here that uh, we can hit, James. Um, how do we feel about the radical changes and dramatic turns in the Dorn story? Um, another question about Alistair Thorne. Do we think it was wise for him and the mutineers to announce the assassination in front of everyone? Uh, and lastly, what circumstances do you think caused Sansa to diverge from Brienne? Oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm not sure I know anything about that. Um, I think we're happy with, with Dorne. We right? talked or about Dorne, I feel. I am kind of with you. Again, with Alistair Thorne, it does sort of seem like like the Night's Watch was like, ah, oh, like mutineers, like, we'll, we'll kill you. And then Alistair Thorne's like, guys, no, we did it for a good reason. And they were like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> We'll let that we'll let that slide. <laughs> if the body's lying there in the middle of the courtyard and you're like in this isolated castle, like things get around, you the know. Giant it's did it's it. not gonna the remain giant did it. One secret one. for it was it was it was it was one one. <laughs> the giant did it. One one. <laughs> one one did it. Um Yeah, see what? that's that's what they should have done, is they should have blamed the wildlings. <laughs> I mean that's you know, that that that, that would have been like like the smart way to, to to frame their enemy. You know, one thing I love about about Sir Alistair Thorne is is, is he's always just shy of being a total outright villain, you know, because he he does. He stands up there. He takes total responsibility for it and he lays out his case in, in front of everyone. He didn't have to do it that way, you know, just like he didn't have to sort of lead the charge uh, in the Battle of uh, of Castle Black and sort of, you know, help help uh, to, to 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 fight the wildlings and, and, and turn, you know, turn around that uh, that battle. I mean, the guy has his moments where you're kind of like from a slightly different point of view. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, I understand that. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because so many of our heroes in Game of Thrones are like these shades of gray characters who do terrible things. I think Sir Alistair Thorne suffers because he compares because we compare him to Jon Snow, who's so 
you know, righteous and noble and heroic. But if Jon Snow wasn't in the picture, you know, we might all be kind of rooting for Sir Alistair like the same way we kind of root for Jamie Lannister to some extent. Uh, just to quickly touch on Miguel's last question, um, how excited were you that Brienne finally got someone to swear allegiance to. She has been a like wandering Ronin for so long now. I, I found myself almost tearing up as she was sort of saying those words to Sansa and Sansa had to kind of be, be coached on, on her responses by Podrick. Uh, that was a very, um, uh, very, very emotional scene that's had a lot of buildup, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and I love the thing, the bit about uh, Podrick helping her because it, it's 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 such a heroic, happy moment, and so unlike Game of Thrones. You know, you, you expect Podrick to have at least lost an eye during that whole fight, or some something <laughs> to keep it from being an outright win. There's normally some sort of uh, collateral damage there, uh, but I like it when they went to do the vows. You know, if they both said their vows perfectly, it would be so much like traditional high fantasy. But for her to kind of falter and for Podrick to help her, it was both more it added a little note of of sort of sort of realism to the moment and also made it more sweet uh, for us at the same time. I, I remember, you know, when I saw the the scene in the um, in the preview screening and uh, that I mean, the entire audience cheered when Brienne came rushing into that scene. <laughs> James, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, what's going on in King's Landing. It's, it's funny how there was a time where everything was happening in King's Landing, and now there's just so much so much else happening in, in the ten other quarters of, of the world that, you know, King's Landing itself can, can sometimes uh, take a back seat. But um, as we've discussed a little bit, we, we, we're seeing Jamie and Cersei, like, together again on screen, seemingly wanting to work together, which is the, this is the first time that this has happened since, I think, the end of season one, uh, uh, before Jamie got captured. Uh, what was it like kind of, uh, for you kind of seeing those, th those characters uh, back together again? What I found really interesting about that scene was uh, Cersei's reaction to learning her daughter was dead because the entire hiatus, you know, you're thinking, oh, she is going to be so mad. She's going to be so angry. She's going to, you know, want to kill Jamie. He's, he's in so much trouble. And, you know, Thrones loves to do what you don't expect. And this is not only unexpected, but it also plays credible. It plays credible that at this point, having suffered and endured all that she's done, that instead of anger, that she would just experience this pure grief. And then on top of that is the added surprise of her speech about her daughter, which is like really moving this and very unexpectedly introspective for Cersei. You know, this idea I've created something so good and, and, and so pure, you know, I never thought that something like that could could come from me. And maybe, you know, if, if she exists, maybe it means I'm not such a monster. And, uh, you know, I, you know, Lena Headey told us, you know, that uh, she never expected uh, her character to ever say anything like that. I mean, Lena Headey, she is just getting so much to do do and knocking it out of the park. You know, the, here's a character who she's has amazing. Been, she she has been there since day one. But you know, just as the cast got more and more crowded, you know, there were kind of whole seasons where Cersei didn't have much to do. And just what she's been doing last season, this season, I I just kind of thought James that you know the best kind of single shot of the night was that sort of like steady shot of her watching the boat come to shore, and you just see her go from happiness to confusion to 
to anger, to sorrow, to resignation. I mean, she's getting so much to play with. And well, what I like, too, is that, you know, Cersei in the books is a really interesting figure. But in my head, she's always kind of basically been like, you know, if you could just like have a Disney princess, like, you know, if you could just have um, uh, Cinderella or Aurora and just make her evil. That's always kind of been Cersei to me in the books. Just this person who looks so beautiful on the outside and the inside is so corroded. And I think, you know, I, I credit this a lot to Lena Headey. In the show, she is a maybe more complicated character or, or just, you know, she gets chances like you're describing when she's talking about her daughter. You do see that, you know, there is a real sadness to her and, and you know, the fact that, you know, she too is sort of like is a victim of the same system that, you know, many people have been victims of in the spirit of George R. R. Martin who famously, you know, Jamie Lannister was the was a demonic figure in books one and two, and then in book three, he, he became almost kind of like the soul of the show. I wonder if something similar is happening to Cersei on, on the TV show, if she is kind of, you know, you, you just, you, you thought she was just so terrible, and now I'm just, you know, you're, you're so invested in her now, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely, and her performance is just uh, absolutely amazing in the show. One thing I want to circle back to is there's a lot of chatter online about a previous scene with Melisandre uh, when she was in a bathtub and not wearing her necklace. Uh, I think it was in season two. And Stannis and she was having a conversation with Stannis's wife. And so the question has become, does this mean the necklace itself is not the source of her cloaking device? Or does it mean that there's just basically a continuity error that we're basically supposed to overlook moving forward? Or someone else had this theory that if you watch the scene, uh, you know, there's this idea that maybe although we're seeing young Melisandre, that maybe Stannis' wife is not and is actually seeing her true self in that scene. So it's a sort of interesting theories that, uh, ranging from, you know, whoops to some masterful, intricate, uh, you know, plan in terms of the whole necklace theory. Well, okay, let's clear up one thing, James, because obviously neither of us actually know. Um, are we calling it a cloaking device, or do we think that it is actually making her young again? I sort of thought that it was actually kind of making her into a young person, you know, sort of like this sort of magic thing that, you know, very picture of Dorian Gray style, as long as you're touching it, you're young. But do you think it's just sort of a kind of like mental illusion kind of a thing? See, that's a great question, and it's unclear. I imagine it has to be to some extent well you know i i i I have to say you have stumped me on this i don't know i i mean what what do you think makes more sense obviously we're dealing with the red god who is a a particularly frustrating deity you know like like james many-faced god I, I think I get him. I think I know kind of what he's all about. People, you, you know, everyone has faces. Nobody, you, you know, everybody is nobody. You know, that's a that's a religion that I can, you, you know, sort of understand. The Red God, he seems to, he, see, he has a wide variety of uh, mystical magic that he can call upon. And it's always difficult to know what he's doing. I think it's making her younger. Again, I, I think somehow it's going to play into how Jon Snow comes back to life. That being said, yeah, I'm I'm not quite sure what to think about that 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 uh, earlier scene. I'm kind of down with the explanation that you came up with, which is that we're seeing her one way, but Stannis's wife is seeing her another way. Oh, poor 
Poor yeah. Stannis' wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more I think about it, though, the more I actually going to lean the other way, because the idea that her entire body just physically goes from, you know, totally old to completely young in a flash. I actually have a harder time you know, accepting that than I do this idea that she puts that on and everybody sees her and experiences her a different way. But basically that body is still what she is. And that's obviously her, her, her true self and, and the real person. Well, James, uh, we know, I, I think next week we are going to get to see Bran again. And Bran, I mean, just as a character is so deeply rooted in magic stuff and in mystical stuff, you were kind of talking a little bit about, about what we can expect to see. And it's fair to say, like, that kind of takes us deep into the kind of mystical Doctor Strange layers of uh, Westeros. So that'll be, I'm, I, I'm kind of excited for that. And I'm also excited because uh, we discussed how Bran seems to have aged about five years uh, in the last year. Uh, Ollie also seems to be, like, like taking the bath in whatever kind of like aging juice because Ollie now is a like fully grown 19 year old boy after after he seemed to be he seemed to be such a young man the last time we saw him stabbing Jon Snow to death. Yeah, Melisandre <laughs> should uh, give give them her necklace so they can, they can take <laughs> off a few years. Yeah. You know, question, by the way, what would happen if Melisandre put her necklace onto Jon Snow? Does it just make him look younger, but he's still dead? Who knows? Listen, like, um, you know, even at this point, even if like the next episode opened with them, like, you know, burning Jon Snow and then dancing on his ashes, I would still kind of be thinking, ah, oh, but like, you know, maybe he warred into Ghost. Can we get him into Hodor? Can we get him into Davos Seaworth? You know, just just combine combine everyone's two favorite characters in, in, into one person. Um, my sense is, and and I I don't know anything obviously, so I'm definitely wrong. I think what's what's going to come to is Melisander somehow sacrificing herself. I, I kind of got the sense that like she has some sort of limited amount of magical power that is keeping her alive, even though she is you know even though she is Max von Sydow years old. Um, and so I, I kind of think that, she, you know, it may come to her saying, well, for, for the good of the Red God or, or uh, w- what have you, I think she puts that on Jon Snow, then she dies and he comes back to life. That, that's what I think. I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably totally wrong. You, you know, for all I know, again, again, I'm also really big on the idea that this is now Dolores Ed's show and all other characters can just sort of fade <laughs> away. <laughs> giving away some sort of piece of uh, fun graph all season long both in the recaps on EW.com and in this podcast so I guess uh, today is your turn. Listeners, uh, your beloved Uncle Hibbard uh, will be opening <laughs> up will be opening up his archives People love uh, it when which... you address them as listeners by the way. <laughs> that sounds awesome. People, Listeners, people my subjects. Listeners, <laughs> you friends, people. friends, <laughs> Romans, countrymen friends, Romans, countrymen, go watch season two of, of Rome. Um, this today's trivia question is very specific, and we are looking for a four letter answer. The question is what drove the Targaryens from Valyria? What drove the Targaryens? We're talking like Danny's ancestors from Valyria. It's, it's a four letter word. We will accept it with a, a, a the 
in front of it. Was that too much of a <laughs> that that may have been too much of a hint, but that's okay. We're all about hints here. Yeah. That's a season that is a season 5 coming your way if you can get that. Uh James, how do they how do they uh, uh get that answer to us? They actually email us. Our email address is gotpodcast.com. And hey, while we're on the topic of how to reach out to us, Feel free to tweet at us. James is at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. If you have any questions or comments that are longer than 140 characters, which, of course, they will be because every question about Game of Thrones now requires two paragraphs of explanation, email us at gotpodcast at ew.com. We'll try to get to that in our next episode. If your question is, what is the three-eyed raven, we will try to answer that. Don't worry. I can't promise full success, but we will do our best. Most importantly, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your enemies about us. Uh, leave us a comment on iTunes. Give us a rating. Uh, we look forward to talking more. Th- this episode, uh, James, you did not lie in our prologue. In our prologue episode, this was definitely the kind of speediest. Like you know, we are picking up right where we left off. Uh, season premiere of Game of Thrones so far. So I, it seems as if you know the the usual sort of like setup time uh, that, that that we get to kind of settle in may not be happening this season. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and what. what- one thing I'd like to add too, um, I just want to thank everybody that listened to the preview episode because uh, we've been stunned. We watched as this uh, podcast went from we were um, you know shocked when it was suddenly at number fifty eight on the iTunes chart, and then even more shocked when it went into the twenties. And as of this morning, it's at number eleven, which is just crazy. Uh, and we just want to really thank everybody that uh, listened to the preview episode, who subscribed, who left nice comments. Uh, we are both podcasting newbies, as is EW. This is a new venture for us, and so there's a lot of eyes on this, and uh, we're really trying our best to uh, give you something that you want to listen to. So thank you so much for uh, checking us out. Thank you.